Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And accept no substitutes. Speaking of substitutes, if you're a big person and you're not drinking coffee, what do you have in your cup this morning? Some of you folks probably have some tea. Some of you adventurous folks probably have a soft drink of your choice. And a few people probably have just plain old water. Jim, we're drinking Costa Rican from one of our favorite places Mm -hmm. that grinds coffee here in Lincoln. It's good stuff. And uh, can you speak up a little bit louder? Hello, radio. There we go. Okay. So, Jim, how's your week been? Pretty good, actually. Did you do anything special for D-Day? Uh, well, basically, I just uh, I, I sat at home and listened to some of the tributes, some of the media tributes that were very nicely done, and uh, ruminated on, on what these people did. The, the CBS uh, special they did with Walter Cronkite and uh, Dwight Eisenhower in 1964, it was the mm-hmm. 20th anniversary. They recently put that up online, so I watched that, and that was really something. Yeah. To place that again. Uh, well, and, and if you read some of the stories, the firsthand accounts of uh, Omaha Beach, yeah. Normandy, Ponduho, uh, it's it just boggles the mind what these young men did and the things they went through. The planning that went into that, all the guesswork, the meteorological uh, forecast, trying mm-hmm. to find that window of the right tides, the right moonlight. And uh, you know, as a deacon for Westminster Presbyterian Church, one of the people that I called on um, was Bernie Nider. And Bernie was a guy that was in the first wave. Uh, wow. And I believe he was at Omaha, uh, Omaha Beach. And uh, I sat a number of times and listened to some of his stories. And uh, he had uh, an eloquence, a sense of humor, despite what he'd gone through, uh, and uh, a depth of detail that was just remarkable. And so I also found a presentation that Bernie had done to a class at Northeast High School. And uh, I watched that in its entirety. So my father was one of those people that got ashore and from Normandy, he fought all the way through Europe, uh, on into Germany, and was there for the first part of the occupation. So uh, D-Day, uh, uh, June 6th, we salute all the people, the men and women, that took part in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about when you, when you see evil, you can't step away from it. You have to face it and acknowledge it, uh, and you've got to do something about it. And these guys and gals did. Uh, Remarkable men and women. We've got a great show for you today. We've got Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. And then our main guest is coming up at about 40 minutes into the broadcast, and that's Reverend Dr. Barry Downing. He's a Presbyterian minister who wrote back in 1968 a, uh, a very, very pivotal book for a lot of people, The Bible and Flying Saucers, subtitled An Inquiry into Some Possibilities. 
He's our main guest today. Now, we've got some Costa Rican in our cup, and we're going to start the show with Charlene and the Capital Humane Society. She should be right there. Good morning. Hi, Charlene. How are you and your family doing? Doing really well, thank you. And what's new at the Capital Humane Society? We have wonderful animals waiting for homes, especially have a lot of cats that hope to be adopted. We have some um, events coming up, some fundraisers. There's oh. a dine-in fundraiser night, um, and that's at either of the Don and Millie's. Uh, there'll be a beer tasting for Capital Humane Society at the Still. And then we have Tails and Taps coming up July 13th. And you can get all those details on our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. When folks stop out today and tomorrow to see some of these really cool uh, dogs and cats we're going to talk about, what can they bring? How do they know what to donate? Just some regular household items that you guys and gals really need out there. Sure. So we're always using towels and blankets. You can bring those by. Um, they're very helpful. If you can bring us some canned cat food, that's always appreciated. We have so many felines that we care for. We also have rabbits and guinea pigs and like to have Timothy hay for them. So that's another great idea. And then we do have a long wish list on our website um, with other suggestions of items you could donate. That, that, that descriptive term, Timothy Hay, I've always wondered about that. Why isn't it Brad or Susie Hay? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. Uh, well, you know, you guys can look that up on the Internet now. <laughs> there probably is some history. I'm sure there is. Yep. This is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. Want to have some fun with us? Yeah. Here's, here's, uh, here's the website. It's capitalhumanesociety.org. And dial up the cats for adoption, because we're going to talk about some great cats. Who's up first, Charlene? We're going to start with Elton. And Elton is a two-year-old neutered male, domestic short hair, has a cute little expression on his face. He's a tabby cat with really pretty swirls. <laughs> a super Ooh, cool yes. cat looking for an awesome family. Really cool cat. If your name is John, this would be an ideal cat for you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, L. Tun. Yeah, look at him. He's almost got a grin going there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of a Cheshire cat thing uh -huh. going on. Uh, beautiful, beautiful markings on Elton's forelegs. Uh, he's mm -hmm. just a very, very pretty cat. So he's our first cat. Who's next? Next up is Betsy. And Betsy is black and white, about a year old, soft, short fur. Uh, she really just comes up to you and says hello, loves to be told she's pretty, loves a little head scratch. So we hope she'll be purring in a great new home soon. She looks kind of like half of an Oreo cookie. Mm-hmm, yep. Black on top, white on bottom. <laughs> okay, very fun cat, mm -hmm. Betsy. And we've got Elton, Betsy. And we have... On page three of cats, we have a lot of cats, so the very last cat on page three is Zuzu. And she's two years old, a spayed female, a terrific oh torty, really has kind of an intense little look on her face, ready to play. Um, she's sure to make you smile, grin from ear to ear, so we hope that somebody is looking for a torty. This is a cat that goes with any decor. Mm-hmm, yep. Makes it better. Her. Wow. <laughs> yeah, this is, a, this, cat. this is a cat, Jim, that in some of those, like, earth tone surroundings, this cat would be invisible. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. 
you'd see kind of like this blur going on and go, I think that's Zuzu. <laughs> some, some great cats here. Um, what is the spay-neuter program about? We have a low-cost spay-neuter program for felines, for low-income families. So we do see a lot of cats coming through our doors as surrenders and as strays. And we do know there's a serious uh, cat overpopulation pro- uh, problem. So we have this program in place to help alleviate some of that, um, to help low-income families with cats to get them spayed and neutered so they are not adding to overpopulation. This is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society, and we've been talking about cats for adoption. They're open today and tomorrow. And Charlene, remind us again what the hours are. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Um, And what do you have in your cup this morning, Charlene? I'm going with spiced chai today. It's pretty tasty. Mmm, yum. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of fighting fire with fire. It's going to be another warm day today. Mm-hmm. Jim's going to come up with a weather forecast here in just a couple of minutes. I can do that. Nudge, nudge. I'm looking wink, up wink. Timothy Hay right now. Say no more. <laughs> okay, let's talk about dogs for adoption. Okay, we're going to start with Jersey. Joyzy. <laughs> and she is a very pretty boxer British bulldog mix. Oh, yeah. Five years old, such a sweet, sweet face. She can be a little bit shy at first, but once you earn her trust, she just leans up against you and is very loving. She's looking for a home with people who will treat her with so much kindness and, and give her just lots and lots of love. What a pretty girl. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. I like leaner dogs. They're kind of fun. They come up next to you and just sort of like lean into your foreleg mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, Jersey, uh, and these are fun because you can go to these pictures, these thumbnails, and click on those. They expand then into a more description uh, with a picture as well. So take a look at Jersey. Jersey's followed by? We have a perfect pair, and it's Bella and Piper. We have a couple perfect pairs for adoption, and those are dogs that need to go home together because they are very bonded. And Bella and Piper are a big pair. They're great Pyrenees mixes, 10 months old, uh, very fun dogs. When we get them out in the play yard, they're just running around, doing little zoomies, and then playing with each other. So they're very close. They're hoping to find a great home together. Um, they don't care that much for other dogs, so they want to be the only two dogs. But that's that's a lot of dogs, <laughs> so you'll you'll be fine with those two. And again, they're just really really sweet, young. They do need plenty of uh, training and attention, uh, but we know the right family is out there. Uh, this is a hint to uh, one or more of the high school cross country teams. I saw crossing my Facebook feed yesterday. An article where a um, cross-country team periodically would go out to their local humane society and by prior permission and, and arrangement, they would get the dogs that didn't get a lot of exercise and put them on, on leads and take them for a jog. And what a great idea. Mm-hmm. What a great idea. So if you're a cross-country runner out there, uh, and you want to get some fun in with a dog friend, contact the Capital Humane Society and see if you can't maybe 
get something going like that. They've got a volunteer yeah. program. That'd be kind of fun. We have, yeah, wonderful volunteers. Um, it's uh, The most popular position is probably our dog walking position, and they're awesome volunteers who are very dedicated. They come in three times a day to make sure our animals are getting proper exercise and attention. So we're very, very grateful to them. Okay, so we've got um, Jersey and then a pair to draw to, Bella and Piper. And who's next? Mabel. And Mabel is three years old, a spayed female Australian Shepherd. So beautiful. Unusual. Yeah, mostly white with blue eyes. Um, She is deaf, so she needs a family that um, will work with her. But she's a bright dog, a loving dog, um, ready to find a family that will give her all the attention and love she deserves. Uh, There are so many great dogs uh, that their pictures are here, and they're just waiting for you. We'd love to hear about some of you folks going out and uh, adopting uh, cats this weekend as well as dogs. Charlene, uh, tell the kind folks again about hours open today and tomorrow. Our Pilac Pet Adoption Center, where all these beautiful animals are, is open today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. And I have your answer on Timothy Hay if you want to hear it. Yes. Okay, Timothy Hay is made from Timothy Grass which is a European perennial, probably named after Timothy Hansen, an American farmer and agriculturalist said to have introduced it from New England to, to the southern states in the 18th century. Okay, so now we know. That's why it's Timothy instead of Brad yes. or Susie Hay. <laughs> you can think Timothy Hansen. Okay. Uh, we just had... Um, um, uh, D-Day, June 6th. Did you uh, remember any relatives, uh, Charlene, any grandparents that were in that? Um, I did have some family, but we want to respect everyone that was in that, mm-hmm. and so I I definitely keep them close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're able to have the fun here and the, enjoy the freedom today because of their, uh, their incredible valor. So. You're right. Charlene, thanks so much for all your great work, and stay cool this weekend. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn, and over here is my sidekick, Jim Shorney. Yes, I am. And uh, Jim, now this is called Impromptu Radio, because Paula, who normally is here now, is not going to be here today. Now, you knew that, but the the audience listening didn't. So Paula is perfectly okay, and we love her, and she loves us, we think. But she is traveling, and she's over, I believe, in Italy. Wow. I've uh, been watching her Facebook page and seen some things she's posted there, and uh, she's enjoying some great food, beautiful countries, some great folks. And uh, so she'll be back with us. Uh, on the Saturday show on July 13th. And mm-hmm. this is summer. It's summer vacation. Sure. Um, and so it actually isn't physically summer yet. It's still spring. It feels like summer. And uh, so we've, we've got a few of these absences, and we'll just carry on. So, Jim, what do you want to talk about? Well, you asked me for a weather forecast, so... Uh Right now it's fair and 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 27C, 
sunny, high of 88 today, and uh, tonight a low of 60 with a 30% chance of thunderstorms. So there you go. I just officially turned on my underground sprinkler. So uh, you're not one of those people that leaves it on when it's raining buckets? No. Good. No, in fact, if, if it's actually, because um, I've got it set to come on really early in the morning. Oh, good. yeah, that's the best time to run them, early in the morning or later, late in the evening when evaporation isn't so high. If I, if I think about um, the forecast and I know that there's going to be rain that night, then typically I shut it off mm-hmm. so it doesn't run. The, I've got it spread so it's not, I think I'm on an every three-day cycle is what I've got it set at. So. Sure. But my lawn's doing great, and uh, this last week, uh, I worked smart, Jim. Instead of going out on one day and knocking off two lawns, which is about seven hours of being outside, and it just, it wipes me out. I did one lawn on a single day, and I did two two back-to-back, two days, and I can handle that, so... um, As a guy that plays guitar a lot, I pretty much sit in a chair. And so getting out there and walking back and forth is, uh, is great exercise. And plus, I've got this, this wristwatch thing called a Fitbit. I've heard of those. That my daughter gave me, and so I can track my steps, my miles, and it's kind of mm-hmm. fun. Now, one of the things I haven't resolved is it said, put this on your non-dominant hand. Well, I'm right-handed, right? So right. that would be my left. Correct. But I play guitar with my left hand. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that messes that up or not. If I should switch it back over to the right when I'm playing the left, I don't know. Well, I think I'd just leave it. Yeah, I'm not going to worry about it. I mean, they, they probably know about things like guitar players and, and such. So you think? I think. And I've seen people with the, the Apple watches and whatnot that do the same stuff. And uh, it's a pretty popular thing these days. Yeah. So I, I've had good exercise. We've talked about D-Day and our thanks to all the folks out there mm-hmm. that uh, went through that. Um, you know, some of the people that we don't talk about in terms of D-Day and those, those incredible events are some of the people at home, some of the support people. Sure. Um, for example, my grandfather was farming down by Superior, Nebraska, and all the able-bodied men were basically either drafted or had volunteered. Uh, He was an older gentleman, and so he farmed by himself until Dad came home after the war to help him for a bit and until he could hire some more people. So there were were a Mm -hmm. lot of people that kept the home fires burning um, uh, in in, in our our quest for, uh, for victory there, so. We've got the next three weeks, people lined up, um, we have Sandra uh, Biskind. She's the co-author with her husband, Daniel, of Codebreaker. Discover the password to unlock the best version of you. I'm not going to have you say this word on the air, but look how the paper folded for that very top word up here. So <laughs> you don't want to say that on the air. Well, but, you could. <laughs> um so Codebreaker uh, and Sandra Biskind, she's up next week. And then I'm very excited, and you're going to love this. Uh, we've talked with Lloyd Arbach uh, a number of times, the parapsychologist, about the need for 
training, for certification, for some way that people that are doing ghost hunting or ghost busting can be more educated about the history, the field, and about what it is that they're doing beyond watching a few TV programs and buying some gadgets. Well, our good friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley has got this uh, incredible publishing company called Visionary Living Publishing. And she's got Greg Lawson's new book, How to Be a Paranormal Detective. And get this, Greg Lawson has got a background in law enforcement. So he's going to use those standards and procedures, that training, to help people be a paranormal detective. And we've got him June 22nd coming up. Um, June 29th is a person who has a really fun last name to say, Linda Zlotnick, Z-L-O-T-N-I-C-K. Let me hear you say that, Jim. Zlotnick. Yeah, it's fun. Linda Zlotnick, she's got a book called Star Sisters and Astrologers Memoir of Twin Loss. And more folks coming up. Stay tuned for... Great shows, and I'll see you next week. No, no, we've got more programs here. Is it over already? Gosh. Nope. It, I know it flies, but it's not quite that fast. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun. So let's see. Um, I'm planning to go to Laughlin, Nevada for the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. This is in becoming November. a regular thing for you. Oh, yeah, I yeah. love it. It's a lot of fun. I have a really busy October with a lot of storytelling, and then I hop on a plane and fly out to, to relax. Uh, I'm not a sort of a, a party guy, so having this in a casino is eh. But one of the cool things about the casino is that to keep people there, they have a whole variety of restaurants, mm-hmm. and they're, they're quite good, very, very good. So um, I'm, I'm a guy that travels by his stomach, and I'm looking forward to a lot of that great cuisine there. And plus, seeing people like my friend James Rigney, uh, the gentleman from Australia, and folks from all over the world get together for this. So it's the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And that's the uh, first weekend, if I remember correctly, from the top of my head, uh, which is getting bearer and bearer, uh, first weekend of November. And at Starworks... USA.com. So you can kick on the, your old website, your browser, and, uh, and take a look at that. Make your plans, and we'd love to see you there in Laughlin, Nevada. Jim, you're a tech person, so. Sort of. You're going to, yeah, sort of. You're going to appreciate this. So, Microsoft, as you know, this is not a plug for them. Microsoft has announced that they're discontinuing support for Windows 7 Mm -hmm. so that they can force everybody to go to Windows 10 that's a Microsoft user. I've been on 10, and I dislike very much the the Outlook mail program. Well, and, you know, I've, I've been messing around with computers for a long time, and I've been through just about all the versions of Windows, and I'm forced to use Windows 10 at work on on two different computers, and I 
can honestly say I don't hate it any less than the first time I saw it. I just, my personal opinion, you know, your mileage may vary. I'm, you know, there's a lot of people out there that like it, but uh, I don't. So uh, I'm, I'm using Windows 7 at home on one computer and a version of Linux called Kubuntu Linux on a, on a laptop in the ham shack for ham radio digital modes and programs and uh, it it just runs flawlessly yeah. and, and of course Windows 7 is the last in my opinion the last visually appealing version of Windows and starting with Windows 8 they kind of kind of dumbed it down for the the tablet and smartphone crowd no, no offense but uh it's it just the the coloring and and layout and, and icons and whatnot are just so bland so this last week knowing what you know now about mm -hmm. windows 7 and and the move to windows 10 that's going to be in january i'm investigating other uh mail programs that I can use instead of the Outlook program, which I don't like at all. Yeah, there's there's a lot of them out there. And so I've looked at Thunderbird, uh, which is the Firefox yeah. Mozilla people. Yeah. And so far, that's my top choice. I've, I've used Thunderbird in the past. I've also looked at Mailbird. And um, so this last week, I spent um, a couple of days of reading tech articles opinions, doing research, trying a few things. And I came to the decision that I know a lot in other subjects. Yes. I don't know a lot in this subject. And so I'm, and going, that's okay. I'm going to hire somebody that does <laughs> and say, I'm going to have Windows 10 <clears throat> reinstalled on my computer because it came with it. Uh -huh. And I'm going to have a program for mail that does this and this and this and this. Sure. And you install it. And so when can I pick it up? And what do I owe you? So I'm going to do that as opposed to taking two days of pulling my hair out yeah, and reading and, conflicting opinions and, and trying, going back and trying, trying this to, and trying that. And so um, once I made that decision, and I guess the bottom line for this soliloquy is that sometimes when we grapple with things and we say, I know where I can get that done, and we make a decision. It's like a weight that lifts off our shoulders. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do everything. We don't have to be an expert in everything. We need to know who to call and who to employ. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've quite an adventure this week, and, and a little bit of personal discovery as well. Um, I think I've sufficiently covered enough ground now that we can go to our break and then come back with our main guest. Yeah, and we can drop this this Windows topic because I'm sure people are are just sitting out there saying, "Shut up and get to the guest." Well, uh, yeah, but they they wouldn't say it like that. They would be very well, polite. Some of them would. Our listeners, our listeners are <laughs> not mentioning any names. Very but, educated uh, and polite. And yes, so. most of them are. We're going to go now to the bottom of the hour break, and we've got. Um, we're going to have a great program. Our main guest is Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, who wrote The Bible and Flying Saucers. Great topic. 1968. It was just republished earlier this year. Cool. It's a 50th anniversary edition, and he's got a brand new introduction that I read last night. So I'm looking forward to that.
We're going to have a great conversation. Hope you can stay tuned. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And Jazz in June, presenting an evening in Brazil, live on Tuesday, June 11th at 7 p.m. Located at 12th and R Street near the Sheldon Museum of Art, Jazz in June is a family-friendly event for all with a market at 5 p.m. with food vendors, crafts, and more. Details for the season's lineup, VIP seating, and meet and greets at jazzinjune.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model back. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Vic Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM.
Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's sure great to have you with us, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. Reverend Dr. Barry Downing has been a pastor in Presbyterian churches, lives, I believe, still in Endwell, New York, was born in Syracuse, New York in 1938, received a uh, undergraduate degree from Hartwick College with a major in physics, a BD degree from Princeton Theological Seminary, and a PhD degree from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, where he specialized in the relation between science and religion. I'm holding in my hand a copy of his book, The Bible and Flying Saucers, this is a first edition that was published back in 1968 by J. B. Lippincott Company. And I own a couple of these. Um, I've thought a lot over the years of this book and Dr. Downing's work. And for a long time made a point of whenever I went through book sales and I found a copy of the book, <clears throat> excuse me, I would always grab a copy and I kept usually a half a dozen uh, paperback editions around so that if people uh, in conversation would express interest, I would say, you know, I've got a book that I want you to read and take a look at this. Uh, to top it off, he's a Presbyterian, as am I. Yeah, go, go Presbyterians. <laughs> so I've, I've had the pleasure of having uh, Reverend Downing on the program before, and I've looked forward again to our visit. He's got a brand new edition of this book that has been published this year. And uh, Reverend Downing, it's so great to have you back on the program. Okay, and thank you for being such a devoted fan, <laughs> buying extra books and passing them around. Really appreciate it. Oh, I went over, and I think I've got um, I've got two of your first edition hardcovers. Um, I've got a couple that never came back from circulation, <laughs> and yes, I've got that does happen. I've got three or four of the of the soft covers um, that, uh, and you know what, <clears throat> I see now, and this is my own fault. I see that you've also got a book that came out in 2017, uh, and I apologize, I didn't know about this. It's Biblical UFO Revelations, Did Extraterrestrial Powers Cause Ancient Miracles? And I will be picking up a copy of that this weekend as well. Okay. Glad to hear it. Basically, uh, this second book, deals a lot with the reactions of other people to my work. Mm -hmm. And, um, okay, the reactions haven't been what we'd call favorable from other religious people, but there we are. So I try to explain 
why I don't agree with their point of view and why I like mine better. Mm-hmm. I, I read a quote last night, too, in preparing for the show that I just loved. And it was somebody that had asked you, because the book was originally published back in 1968 and you were doing this new edition, what has changed in your thinking over the last 50 years? And you responded and said, well, the Bible is pretty much the same <laughs> as it was 50 yep. years ago. <laughs> yep. That's, that's the truth. <laughs> uh, so yep. I'd, I'd like to have you go back with me in time. And when was it that you really got interested, or perhaps how was it, in the UFO mystery? Did you have your own sighting, or were you following because of your theological interests? Were you following the work of Carl Jung, or how were you introduced to this? Well, I was introduced in high school. My father brought home some Donald Kehoe flying saucer books. Sure. So that's kind of where it started. Sure. Uh, and he seemed sincere. He seemed well-informed, uh, and it made sense to me that his argument that the government was covering it up, uh, I, I could believe that. And so I had that in my mind when I went off to college. Uh, as you've already read, I majored in physics mm-hmm. and um, didn't think a lot about UFOs during my time in college. Uh, I've never seen one that I would call a UFO or you know a spaceship in another world, certainly, even up to this point. Um, went to seminary and became aware of the conflict between science and religion, especially during my third year there. Uh, one of my professors said, nobody today believes in the ascension, do they? And if Jesus did not ascend to heaven, we may only suppose his bones lie buried somewhere in the Middle East. And here in one sentence, the guy had wiped out basically the whole idea of the ascension and the resurrection, and therefore any hope we might have as humans for life beyond death, because the whole Christian idea of mm-hmm. resurrection of Jesus foreshadows what we hope is our own uh, eternal life to come. Mm-hmm. And I thought, here I am, I'm a senior, I'm going to go off and get ordained. What am I going to say at a funeral, you know? <laughs> We're going to say, well, here's Grandma, we loved her a lot. In the old days, we used to believe that Grandma was with Jesus now, but we're smarter, we're more scientific, we realize none of that stuff is true, so grandma's dead and that's it, too bad. You know, I just thought, oh my goodness, what, what's going on here? But of course, in a sense, the prof in this class, there were only eight of us. I think he wasn't saying something that he expected to publish throughout the seminary world, but at the same time, this said to me, there's some hypocrisy here, because, you know, a lot of the pastors are going out saying the same old stuff when, in fact, the really smart people in the church don't believe it. Well, that troubled me a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, a best friend in seminary, uh, and he and I had both worked on the student seminary newspaper together. And um, so one day during the Easter break of our senior year, he said to me, I'm going to go to the University of Edinburgh and work on a Ph.D. in New Testament. Why don't you come and work under John McIntyre in, in the philosophy of religion or something like that, you know? And my wife at the time 
uh, yeah, let's go. Let's go to Scotland. Yeah, right, let's go to Scotland. So, at the time, we did not have a lot of money. My wife had a job working as a chemist, and I got summer jobs working wherever I could. We figured we could save enough money to go to Scotland for one year at that time, because things in Scotland are cheaper than... Think about this. Tuition at the University of Edinburgh for a PhD program at that time was 60 pounds a year. Whoa. And if you figured the, po- the pound was worth three bucks, that's $180 a year. So this is affordable okay, compared with American schools. Anyway, so uh, we signed up and got our passports and all that. And my friend saw me in August, I think, and said... Um, I'm not going to Edinburgh. I'm going to Basel, Switzerland, because the prof in Edinburgh is retiring that I wanted to study under. So that's how I got to Scotland. And and I told my professors when I arrived, uh, John McIntyre and Tom Torrance, heard what I wanted to study, which is eschatology, time and space. And when they heard this, uh, he heard this, he signed on as my second advisor. In any case... Remember him telling me, you know, you're not really smart enough or educated enough or you haven't lived long enough to do eschatology time and space in the 20th century. So we're going to push you back to the 17th century and have you do Isaac Newton. So my dissertation title ended up being Eschatological Implications of the Understanding of Time and Space of the Thought of Isaac Newton. Uh, A lot of people laughed when they heard me describe that title. And the university has now actually made it available online to download if anybody's interested. But in any case, that's that's how I got going. Uh, just dealing with the whole problem that science has raised. Now, what my professor had said was, the reason we don't believe in the ascension, is he used to believe, and the biblical people believed, that the earth was flat, and heaven was up, and hell was below the earth, and here we are. Now, you know, since Copernicus realized that there is no up, the Earth rotates on its axis, and either everywhere is up or there is no up, uh, this kind of stuff is just mythology, stuff the biblical people made up. And so I was kind of jumping into the whole issue of uh, how do we maintain our Christian belief in things like the Ascension and the Resurrection in face of the new cosmology that we now have. And that's what I was working on. And of course, Newton was the one who kind of confirmed the whole idea of the planets rotating around the sun and so on. And he explained it by the law of gravity, which up until then, there hadn't been a good explanation for it. Uh, Rene Descartes had suggested that there were kind of like whirlpools out in space that kept... Uh, the planets in orbit around the sun, like a barrel might be in a whirlpool in, in a big river or something, just going around and around, you know. In any case, so Newton disposed of Descartes, and, and of course, his theory of gravitation was what uh, really established the, our understanding of modern cosmology up until Einstein. So is... that's, that's how I got there. And then about... October of my senior, of the third year at Edinburgh, I started thinking about the angels in the Bible and that we're now moving into the space age. And I thought, what if the angels in the Bible are actually beings from another uh, 
you know, another planet, another uh, place in the cosmos. Um, might that explain some of these biblical uh, reports of angels or beings coming down from the sky? So I got that idea going right then. Uh, was so excited by it, I was tempted to commit my P- uh, quit my PhD work and uh, co- come back home to the United States and start writing the book. But I kind of made a deal with God that I want to finish my PhD first, so I did. Finished in May of 1966. Came home. I didn't have a church, didn't have a job. Set up shop in my in-law's basement in Rochester, New York, and started writing the Bible and flying saucers. And I had completed it in February of 67, rejected by several um, publishers before it was finally accepted in June. Uh, but in the meantime, I got a church position in Endwell, which is where I ended up staying for where I still live. So that's kind of how it happened. Mm-hmm. Bible and Flying Saucers was accepted by Lippincott, if you've already mentioned, and published in April of 68. And here we are. Uh, this is Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, the author of the Bible and Flying Saucers. And... Uh, here's a, a funny uh, Scottish memory. Uh, as you know, uh, Reverend Downing, we've just uh, celebrated and paid homage to the people that took part in D-Day, uh, the incredible sacrifices that people made. And I read of a uh, group of Scottish guys that were going to be storming one of their beaches. I don't know if it was Sword or another one. Uh, And um, Lord so-and-so said to his personal bagpiper, get your pipes ready, because I'm going to have you play there. And the piper said, well, they've told us that we can't do that. It's illegal because of musicians being endangered on battlefronts. We're not supposed to do that. And this Scottish lord said, well, that was a British memorandum, and we're Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> so this, yep. this gentleman actually on the beach, while there was incoming fire, stood up and walked around and played his bagpipes, and lo and behold, the German gunners thought this guy was apparently nuts, and they quit firing for a period of time and allowed the Scottish guys to advance on the beach. True story. Wow. Yep. So, in, in my, my preamble on my newsletter, Dr. Downing, I wrote that for many of us that get into this mystery, we are attracted perhaps by the scientific part of it and I call it the hardware and the nuts and bolts. You're trying to understand what these craft are, um, what makes them move the way they do, how they can go from zero to 5,000 miles an hour and make these right angle turns and how they can disappear and reappear and all this stuff. Um, But then for a lot of us, there's some larger questions that start to come forward. If, if these occupants are sentient beings, 
if they are intelligent and we worship God, do they worship this same God? What is their worship practice like? Does that, as it does partially for us, does that help us understand them? Does it partially define who they are? And so a number of years ago, I made that decision that I've had enough reports personally to prove to me the existence of some UFOs as being real craft. So those larger questions started to pop forward. And I don't know, I don't remember when I was first exposed to your book, um, but as I've said earlier, it's been a, a, a good book for me to read and to understand with my Christian background as well as to, to uh, pass along to friends. Uh, am, I, am I right, Dr. Downing, because you've been at this for a long time, uh, are there these larger questions that one has to face after they work through the nuts and bolts in the hardware? Yes, and I would say the larger questions uh, have not been answered yet. <clears throat> um, and obviously we've got, we've got a complex set of issues. We got the UFOs. Um, the government says there's nothing there, nothing to see here. You know, keep on moving. <laughs> and the aliens themselves have, to some extent, cooperated in the government cover-up. I would think that the aliens, with their ships, could appear and land in the middle of a football field during 50,000 people watching or whatever, and squash the lie very quickly if they chose to do that. So the interesting thing is that the UFOs have been willing to kind of hover on the edge of uh, our consciousness or our awareness, for allowing skeptics to say, nah, they're not there, a misidentified natural phenomenon, clouds, shooting stars, uh, swamp gas, whatever, all the old stuff. And so I can blame the aliens partly for the fact that I've had to live for 50 years with people making fun of me, not only for believing in UFOs, for being absurd enough to connect UFOs to the Bible. And um, I can com have complained in my prayer life, why are you dragging this out? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we've got that. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the YouTube movie, the Nimitz Encounters, a film by Dave Beatty. I think that's only been available for a few days. If you have not seen it yet, it's very worthwhile, I think, very well done. Um, and it deals with the Nimitz Encounters, the Tic Tac UFOs from 2006. And they've had quite a bit of publicity, and I think to some extent the release of UFO information that was connected to a Harry Reid's project to some extent was stimulated by the Nimitz, Nimitz sightings. In any case, this, this film has four people that were on board either the Nimitz or the USS Princeton, which was a, a, a rocket support ship, and uh, four people who had to sign the non-disclosure statements after they were involved in this event decided they could break their disclosure statements and say what they saw. Um, 
what they saw, of course, were several UFOs that were cylindrical in shape, um, no no wings or anything like that, no obvious means of propulsion, just what you mentioned a few minutes ago. And apparently about 47 feet in length, and there were several of them, and they kept dropping from the sky at a height of um, maybe 80 miles or something like this. And they approached 60,000 miles an hour in speed when they came down to the water, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we've got very good reporting of something going on here. What I said in the introduction to the 2019 edition of the Bottle of Flying Saucers is that I think if the people of Israel had seen the Tic Tac UFOs, they would have called it a pillar cloud by day and a pillar fire by night. Mm -hmm. The uh, first thing we have to work on, I think, or the way in which we describe what we're seeing. If the biblical people had seen a flying saucer, they wouldn't have called it a flying saucer. If they'd seen a UFO, they wouldn't call it a UFO, or they wouldn't call it a Tic Tac UFO. What would they call it? And I think they called it a pillar cloud by day and a pillar fire by night, which in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, says that once the Jewish people were brought out of Egypt uh, with all the plagues that happened, including Passover, that they were met by a UFO. They didn't call it a UFO. They met by the pillar cloud by day and the pillar fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now that's Exodus 13, 21 and 22. If you, at home, listening, have the Interpreter's Bible and have all 12 editions, go to Volume 1 and look up in Exodus <coughs> chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, because you will want to know what the Interpreter says the pillar of cloud and the fire is. And what you will find it says is it's a mythological construction made up by the Jewish people to represent their idea of God. In other words, it was nothing. It did not exist. And this is pretty standard thinking among Christian scholars uh, at this point. But that's a huge decision, okay? In other words, they, they, the <clears throat> biblical interpreters decided this is not anything natural. There's nothing that does what this thing does, and therefore they must have invented it. But what this thing does is it leads Israel up to the Red Sea, which seems like a stupid thing to do because the chariots of Egypt are following closely behind and will yeah. certainly catch you're, up with them once they get to the Red Sea. get cut off. Yes. And, um, of course, what a shock it is that when the army of Egypt catches up with Israel, the pillar cloud of fire moves to a position from leading Israel up to the sea to a position behind Israel and settles on the ground and keeps the Egyptians from closing in. And you can see why the biblical interpreters say, this doesn't sound like anything that is natural to me. And so it sounds like maybe bravado on the part of Israel, <laughs> claiming that God did this great stuff for us. Um, it wouldn't have been possible, I would say, for the interpreters of the Bible and for the the ones who wrote this version of the interpreter's Bible to have come up with the UFO explanation because the scholarship at this time 
wasn't thinking about flying saucers or UFOs, and certainly not connecting them to the Bible. But once you think of the pillar of cloud and fire as some kind of spaceship with a guy in it talking to Moses and having a, a technology which uh, is exhibited in the Tic Tac UFOs where they fly at as much as 60,000 miles an hour with no propulsion system visible, you know, what kind of power have we got here? And what would happen if this power were unleashed on a body of water like the Red Sea? Uh, would we get straight walls of water, as the Bible suggests happened? Would the seabed be baked out uh, when modern UFOs land on the ground? Very often the ground is absolutely baked dry, as if they were hit by some type of microwave power. So suddenly the types of <clears throat> uh, things reported at the parting of the Red Sea make sense if you've got UFO technology there. Uh, Reverend Downey, let me take a top-of-hour break, and we'll come right back to this uh, discussion here. Uh, we've got the Israelites that are up against the Red Sea. Uh, the pillar of cloud, the uh, pillar of fire has settled behind them. Uh, and I want to talk to you about the description of the uh, chariots also of the Egyptians and what, what was going to be happening to their chariots here. Okay. Uh, this is Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, and if you're a subscriber to my newsletter and or you can go to our Facebook page, Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, you can see the multi-links I provided so that you can um, look at his work. You can also go to um, your favorite search engine and type in the Bible and flying saucers, and there'll be an Amazon link that pops up. Um, with his brand new edition uh, published in 2019. Stay tuned for more conversation with Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, the author of The Bible and Flying Saucers. Uh, this is Jim and Scott. That's Jim. I'm Scott. And we're going to replenish our coffee cups. And it's great to have you out there listening. Stay tuned, please. We'll be right back. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln, offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. The KZUM Summer Concert Series returns this Thursday, June 13th, 7 p.m. at Stransky Park near 17th and Harrison. Join us for an evening of live music by Play and Seesaw, plus food by Muchachos. Special thanks to this season's sponsors, Dietz Music, Open Harvest, OMT One More Time, Nebraska Textiles, and the Lincoln Community Foundation. Find out more at kzum.org. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. 
but big brothers, big sisters, give me a real role model. And the young me... Neither a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray, and Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. music from Enigma. They're our, our official theme music, and they perform around southeast Nebraska. Dave Epp and Carolyn. And thank you so much, Dave and Carolyn, for the use of that great music. I'm Scott Colborn, and with us is Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, the author of The Bible and Flying Saucers, published originally in 1968. It's just been republished, a 50th anniversary edition, and has a brand new introduction. Dr. Downing, in our discussion, we've got the uh, Israelites being pursued by the Egyptians. They've come up to the Red Sea. Um, what's been leading them, the pillar of fire, the uh, pillar cloud, has now settled down behind them, between them and the Egyptians. Um, you mentioned the, the parting of the Red Sea and perhaps the baking of the, of the seabed so that it could be walked upon, w what happens then? Okay, well, I, there's some material that you have to kind of imagine. They don't tell you when the UFO moves from a position between Egypt and Israel uh, to a position directly over the open seabed, but <clears throat> it is... In um, verse twenty, in chapter fourteen, verse twenty-six, I guess it is. <clears throat> I'm not seeing it too well, and <clears throat> didn't have enough light. Um, the Egyptians pursued. This is verse twenty-three. The Egyptians pursued and went into after Israel into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horsemen, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of cloud and of fire looked down upon the host of the Egyptians and discomfited the host of the Egyptians, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Now, so the UFO is now reported to be directly over the open sea channel. Uh, I can't prove this, but my suspicion is that it moved there under cover of darkness because I believe it's a position directly over the Red Sea where the propulsion system of the Exodus UFO, whatever it is, anti-gravitational or whatever, would be most effective directly above the water. And so I think that the water was parted during the night and <clears throat> that you ended up with two walls of water, uh, straight walls, because 
the type of energy that was used is probably electromagnetic in type, <clears throat> and electromagnetic energy travels in straight lines. So we had walls of water, and the seabed baked out, and the Egyptians then followed into this. Now, we all remember that the walls of water collapsed <coughs> on the Egyptians when Moses raised his hand, according to the orders from the pillar of cloud. But something happened before then. And what it says is that the, the pillar cloud, or the Lord in the pillar cloud, looked down upon the host of the Egyptians and discomfited the host of the Egyptians, so that causing their chariot wheels to be clogged, or clogging their chariot wheels, so they drove heavily. Now, a couple of things here. One is the Lord looked down. That's an invisible force that apparently came down. Uh, the Jewish people would have been on the western shore now, high and dry, thinking they've just experienced a great miracle. Mm -hmm. But the miracle isn't over, because the Egyptians are using the very same open channel to come after them that they used to escape. So it doesn't look like that good a miracle if you're a Jewish person seeing the Egyptians coming. And before the walls of water collapsed, before Moses raised his hand and the walls of water collapsed, the power turned off that's holding the water up, the Lord looks down. A sudden glance. Uh, the Lord looked down upon the Egyptians, knocking them flat or discomfiting them, defeating them, and causing the chariot wheels to what? Clogging the chariot wheels is what my version reads, the Revised Standard Version. But there's a cue after the word clogging. And what the, they tell you in a footnote is that the actual word should be binding. The, the chariot wheels are either bound or locked up. And I didn't get this in 1968. <laughs> um, I didn't get the idea that the wheels maybe were locked up. Uh, I thought maybe they were knocked off. That the... That the uh, force of whatever it is that caused the parting of the Red Sea had to be phased out in the center, otherwise it would have knocked the Jewish people flat when they came across, and <clears throat> would have knocked the chariots or the Egyptians flat too if the full force were kept on. So I think we had to have two walls of energy on each side of the Red Sea channel to keep the water back once it's moved, and then the center part has to be free of any force or power so that the Jews could walk through and the Egyptians, likewise, would be coming with their chariots. Now this force comes from above. The Lord looks down, a stunning glance. They didn't actually see any power, but something happened that caused the chariot wheels to lock up. And what I, I'm suspicious of now is that the UFO used some type of heat beam mechanism to heat up the axles and the hubs of the chariots, uh, metal expands when it is heated, and so I now believe that <clears throat> some type of heat mechanism caused the the wheels, uh, hubs, and axles to expand enough so that the wheels couldn't turn and locked up. And once the wheels locked up, the horses could barely move them. So the biblical story is they drove heavily. Yes, indeed, they drove very heavily. Um, then Moses raised his hands as a signal for the power to be turned off, the walls of water collapsed, and that was the end of the army of Egypt. So that's my interpretation of the parting of the Red Sea. It's an astounding amount of detail from my point of view to be kept over um, 
3,000 years. <laughs> it was not written down <clears throat> right on the spot, of course. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a community memory <clears throat> of the people of Israel who uh, were now out moving toward Mount Sinai, where they would receive the Ten Commandments, and uh, where eventually the Jewish people would build a tabernacle under the instructions from the aliens in the pillar of cloud and fire. And that's how basically the Jewish religion uh, was formed. Mm-hmm. It's so important, isn't it, to uh, listen to the witnesses. Uh, and I'm, now I'm thinking uh, historically, going back to the, the Bible, and listen to them using their descriptive terms and their language to describe what it is that they are seeing and experiencing. Uh, and I think we learn so much. My other comment was that it, it, going back to earlier in our discussion when you had a professor that says, you know, I, anybody smart enough now knows that, that Jesus probably didn't ascend, so his bones were lying someplace, and therefore, yeah. you know, so shall we. It seems like it's always man who tries to limit what God can do. <laughs> and I just find that ironic. You know, we, we try to place limits on, on the creation, on, on his ability to do what he wishes through time and space. Uh, and then we think that's okay, yeah, but because <laughs> we're, we're, the, uh, we're the best that there is. Well, life has troubles, you may have noticed. <laughs> um, you know, life has death, uh, life has disease, life has war. And most of us, when we're facing this trouble, we pray, pray for God to protect us. Sometimes we get protection, sometimes we don't. So then, part, you know, doubt enters in. You know, God can do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, why didn't God help me here, you know? Mm-hmm. And certainly when you read the Bible and read about the miraculous saving of, the, we'll say, the Jews from Egypt, uh, it looks like a God who saves. Uh, but how come my loved one didn't get saved from cancer? That kind of thing. <clears throat> so we go through these kind of trials. And uh, I think in terms of what, what I've been working to do is to save what I would call the validity of the biblical witness in the face of scientific skepticism. And scientific skepticism is how science works. Uh, Scientists want proof. That's how science works. I don't have proof that uh, a UFO parted the Red Sea, but what I am arguing is that given what we now know about UFO reality, it seems like it has the possibility of having done exactly what was described uh, at the parting of the Red Sea. But the biblical people used a different language, as you said, from what we use. I want to go on to another part of Exodus, okay, and read the section from chapter 33. This is starting at verse 7, if anybody at home wants to follow this. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the Tent of Meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which is outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose up, and every man stood at the tent door 
and looked after Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the door of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the door of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship every man at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now I think you've probably paid attention to the polls that indicate that the fastest growing group, religious group in America, are the nuns, meaning those who have no religion when they're asked in a Gallup poll or that kind of a thing. And I think part of it is, if, you ta- if you're somebody who will say 40 years of age or under, you come to church and you hear this passage of Scripture read, which I just read, which says that there was this cloud thing that hovered over the tabernacle, the tent that Moses used as the main worship site, and that Moses went up and stood at the door, went inside the tent, and then the the uh, cloud, as it were, the pillar cloud, moved from over the tent down to the door, and Moses talked to this guy in the cloud, uh, and it was the Lord, and they talked as if they were face-to-face. They're going to think, you got to be kidding me. You know, God doesn't ride around in the cloud. You know, give me a break. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so the traditional language of the Bible uh, in which God is thinking is kind of floating around in the cloud, I don't think is believable to most of our modern generation. And that's why they're not lining up in church like they used to. Uh, this has been coming on gradually, this kind of skepticism. As I already said, that skepticism was already there, but maybe whispered when I was in seminary. Um, but if you see this cloud as actually some type of spaceship, and that the aliens in it are in charge, in fact, the Exodus process. They are creating the Jewish religion, which is alive to this day. And among the things that the Jewish people were commanded were not to make any graven images, and that this was radical theology at that time because everybody worshipped idols. Um, The Jewish religion then became a power that has survived to this day when all the old gods have died off, like Zeus or Mars or uh, Dagon or whoever, or even uh, Baal, which was one of the gods that Israel had to compete with when they got to the Promised Land. Um, I think that we need to see that the aliens that we have flying in our skies now brought about the Old Testament religion deliberately, brought about the New Testament religion deliberately, but that they are doing this as agents of God, or I would say missionaries of God, and that they are given technology to do some of their work, which I think the Church has not understand and understood in the past. In the past, if there's anything that happened like the Parting of the Red Sea was explained as supernatural, although nobody really knew what supernatural is. But it appears to me that our modern UFOs have some type of advanced technology and that they use it as part of their work. But that even more, the the modern aliens are agents of God and they've been given the responsibility of looking over and guiding planet Earth. And that the religion of 
the Jewish faith and the religions of the Christian faith, or both, brought about with alien direction, I'll put it that way, or alien angel direction, and that we need to recover this. We need to recover that uh, both religions were brought about by a higher power, and that this other higher power is accountable to God. That's kind of how I see it. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to see the biblical angels as accountable to God, and certainly they're presented this way. Our problem is that it's never occurred to us that the same reality that's in the Bible would be flying in our skies now. And mm-hmm. so that's the big leap of faith, as it were. If, if you could, um, Reverend Downing, if you could... Uh walk out in your backyard tonight and see a UFO, would you Would you ask to do that? Ah, would I ask for a sighting? Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not. Um, it would be like asking for a sign, right? Mm-hmm. And... The Jewish religious leaders said to Jesus, I think more than one occasion, show us the sign. (laughs) And his response was, no sign shall be given to you except the sign of of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights, so will the Son of Man be in in the earth for three days and nights. So Jesus was kind of anti looking for signs um remember when jesus rose from the dead and doubting thomas wasn't there for the appearance to the other 10 in the upper room and finally a week later jesus showed up again and thomas was there and jesus says here see my see my side see the holes my hands do not be doubting but be believing and so Jesus, you know, Jesus was not what I would call gung-ho about uh, sign-giving. Uh, I see the whole UFO thing that we've got now as signs given to our generation. Uh, since I believe already, it would kind of be a little insult to heavenly powers to say, I believe, but I don't really believe. I'm going out in the backyard, please show up and show me, you know. So I'm, I would not be inclined to do that. It would be, I think, an act of unfaithfulness on my part, given where I am now. Uh, if I did that and one showed up, well, fine. But in terms of where I am now, uh, I believe that they're there. Um, and certainly I've heard stories of people uh, who have kind of prayed that the humans would show up and give them a sign and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, and then there has been a response. I've had but, do- uh, Dr. Uh, Downing, Reverend Downing, I've had a, a number of sightings myself, and none of those, uh, well, perhaps one, but uh, the majority of those were not anything that I was uh, preparing to see and or had invited I wasn't doing any sort of a, a prayer, a ritual, any any celebration to try to affect seeing one. They they happened as I was doing something else. Um, the one exception was that 
um, a few years ago on the night of the summer solstice, I had gone out in my backyard and um, I saw a, a, a UFO. And so the, if you will, the, the uh, scientific part of, of me said, if I saw one tonight on the night of the summer solstice, what would happen if I went out tomorrow night about the same time? And so I did that for a week, and a week later, I saw another one. Uh, so you went out every night for a week, for and there was no sighting again until one week later? Yes, there was about roughly 30 minutes. Um, I endured uh, some of the mosquitoes kind of batting them away and um, looking at the, at the night sky. And uh, a week later, I saw uh, another one. Uh, there was a gentleman uh, that was uh, a professor uh, at a small college in Missouri, uh, Harley Rutledge, who uh, in the 1960s, I think correctly said, gosh, if all these people in this big, massive wave are reporting UFOs, we ought to be able to go out and, and see some also. So he did a class project, and um, the book is called Project Identification, where he successfully went out and cataloged um, a number of things seen that they couldn't then prosaically naturally explain, uh, including uh, what he called uh, uh, pseudo-stars, these lights that were taking part in a well-known group of stars, a constellation, if you will. And after watching this for a while, all of a sudden, one of those points of light that has made up, let's say, the, the Little Dipper, one of those points of light suddenly starts moving out of formation and flying around. Um, Every time, Dr. Downing, that I've seen somebody like this, um, it's been awe-inspiring. It's been something that through my life, since my first sighting in 1974, has been to me um, a, a wonderful companion of sorts that whenever I've had my back against the wall with any of life's challenges, life is hard. I've been able to think about that, and suddenly I'm lifted out of the ordinary into a, into a higher state. doesn't make me any better than anybody else, but it's, uh, I'm very grateful. Yes, well, that's, tomorrow's Pentecost Sunday, and what you're saying is that there's a spiritual dimension that comes as kind of a blessing to people who see these things. Yes. And I, I think that's true. And I'd be happy to have that kind of blessing. And I have, when I'm out driving or that kind of a thing, I look at the sky at night, I've been waiting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm perfectly happy to have a, a good sighting. Um, one of the best sightings I've heard came from my cousin, who li lived about uh, 75 miles from where I live right now. And she was going to go bowling one night, went out <clears throat> to get in her car. It was um, regular time, so daylight saving had just gone off, so it was dark. But she was getting into her car, 
pulling on the seatbelt, she looked over her left shoulder and saw this bright light coming toward her car. But it was coming very slowly. So she wasn't sure what it was. Thought it was a plane, maybe in trouble. Got out of the car, stood and watched, and it came straight toward her house. And uh, it was totally silent until it got directly over her house. And then there was a slight hum. It wasn't going at anything except walking speed. Mm-hmm. And uh, had a light on each side of the craft, whatever it was. Uh, she said there was light enough she could have read a newspaper by the light. Wow. And off it went. <clears throat> Not fast or anything, it just went. Um, so there are things there. Um, some are closer than that. I would call this a fairly close encounter. Mm-hmm. And uh, who knows? Why? I was glad <clears throat> that. She told me about it. Um, She was very accepting of it. She believed it was a spacecraft and that they're friendly. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're here to watch over it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I think. I'll take the the bottom of the hour break here, Dr. Downing, and we'll be back for uh, more conversation here. Uh, And what does a Presbyterian minister put in his cup on a Saturday morning? What are you drinking? Are you a coffee coffee drinker? I'm a coffee drinker. Good man. Our conversation with Reverend Dr. Barry Downing will continue. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim. And you guys and gals, stay tuned for more. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Voice of the Blues in Lincoln, Nebraska, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. This Week in Lincoln is supported by the local venues with listings here. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. On Saturday, June 8th, the Vandaliers and Jay Jackson come to the Bourbon Theater at 8 p.m. Bailey's Local hosts Four on the Floor at 9, and the Zoo Bar hosts a 9 p.m. show with Hartford Foch, Gerardo Meza in the Dead of Night, and Jens Lehman. On Sunday, June 9th, the Playmore Ballroom hosts a singles dance party with Jimmy Mack at 8.30. Zularius brings stand-up back to the zoo bar at 8. The Nebraska Music Academy showcase begins at 6 at Duffy's, and The Bourbon hosts She Wants Revenge at 8 p.m. That is live music happening this week in Lincoln. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock in one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dick Valverde, and I'd like to invite you on a musical journey of both sound and rhythm to a place I call Mesoterra. We'll travel far from commercial culture and just a step or two away from the abstract. So join me on Saturday afternoons, 3 to 5 p.m. for Mesoterra, right here on KZUM. 
And speaking of great programs coming up at 12 o'clock noon central time, we have Beta Radio. And it's a test bed of sorts for new programs. So if you uh, are feeling adventurous and inspired, please continue listening after our program. It should be interesting and a lot of fun. Beta Radio coming up today at 12 o'clock noon. On this program, a week from today, is Sandra Biskind with her husband, Daniel Biskind. They're the author of Codebreaker, Discover the Password to Unlock the Best Version of You. Our guest this morning is Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, the author of The Bible and Flying Saucer. It's been republished as a 50th anniversary edition with a brand new introduction. Um, before I go on and ask you about uh, Eric Von Donneken and, and yourself, uh, I wanted to kind of get your take on one of the subsets of this UFO mystery. Uh, people that have reported uh, close encounters, we had been receiving a number of reports in the Lincoln, Nebraska area, and we were preparing in 1988 to be the host site for the Mutual UFO Network International Symposium in Lincoln. So a friend of mine and I began a extraordinary experiences support group for people that had claimed to have close encounter experiences to give them a place to go without fear of ridicule uh, so they could talk in complete confidence talk about what had happened, uh, how they were successfully or unsuccessfully integrating that into their lives, past history, present, future history. And Dr. Downing, the same feeling that I get attending church, I got in that group. Okay, well, this, you know, this moves us more in the direction that uh, you wanted to go maybe 10 minutes ago. All right. Yeah, it was a, One, it was a holy experience. Yes, right. Um, the idea of the holy, Rudolf Otto, right. You had that kind of sense that there's a spiritual reality moving within you. That's the Pentecost experience tomorrow. In church, uh, everybody's going to be reading Acts chapter 2, when the disciples are gathered together and something like tongues of fire come upon them and they all start speaking in different languages. Um, and some churches, some branches of Christianity take this as the paradigm of how all church should be. Everybody should be speaking in tongues or that kind of a thing. Whereas what I see it as a sign of the power of the Holy Spirit to control the minds of people if that's what the Spirit wants to do. The problem with that is that if the Spirit is controlling the minds of people, it counteracts the basic goal of uh, the Bible in both the Old and New Testament, which is to give people freedom. I mean, if the Holy Spirit's controlling your mind and directing it totally so that you're speaking in German, when you've never even heard of German, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this this is not freedom. This is control. I think what the Pentecost story illustrates is that uh, God has control power, 
Uh, the aliens have control power. Uh, in the abduction cases, frequently people's minds are taken over so that they don't remember what they've been through the next day. Uh, and then you had your support group where people are trying to grasp what they remember and what they don't remember and this kind of stuff. So that the alien power, the divine power, uh, can control us. But at the same time, uh, the divine power wills freedom for us. The Exodus story is about freedom. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. Uh, the divine power intervened, brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness, gave them rules for conduct so that everybody would enjoy maximum freedom. And you more you enjoy more freedom if nobody's trying to murder you. You enjoy more freedom if nobody's stealing your stuff. Um, and you enjoy more freedom if people aren't bearing false witness, lying about you, so that the Jewish commandments basically expand the freedom of the community if those commandments are obeyed. When you get to the New Testament, uh, the basic story is Christ died to forgive our sins. And so instead of going around loaded down by guilt, you live a guilt-free life. And if you're guilt-free, you've got more energy to obey the basic commandment, which is to love one another. And what the early Christian community after Pentecost became was a community in which people shared things. Uh, they weren't climbing all each other, over all each other to get ahead, that kind of stuff. They had a sense that they had a divine purpose, that they were loved by God. God knew who they were. God knew their names. Uh, eventually they would die and move on to an eternal place. This was kind of like what I call God's greenhouse. You stay here a while, and then you die, and you get transplanted to uh, your eternal place or That's your a great eternal analogy. garden or wherever it is you're going to grow next. In terms of your sense that uh, you are holy to God, that you are treasure to God, that you get in church and you also got with your support group, um, that this is the magnification of your ability to love. And that's, that's God's game, as I understand it. Mm. Dr. Downing, in your introduction that you've written, a brand new introduction for the 50th anniversary of the Bible and Flying Saucers that's just been published, you uh, talk about Eric Von Doniken uh, and you contrast your views with his views. At first glance, uh, it appears as if you guys are on the same page. Um, uh, ancient aliens, uh, the fact that we've had uh, interactions with this other, if you will, for thousands of years, and it's recorded in our um, written and verbal testimonies, in our artwork, in our, our myths. Uh, how do you and Eric Von Donegan, uh, how do you differ? Well, if you remember, chapter four in his book was entitled, Was God an Astronaut? And it's a pretty good question, okay? And what's interesting about Von Daniken is he took the material from Genesis, uh, the story of the destruction of Sodom, as one of his best stories to illustrate how the guys that we think of as angels are not really angels, they're ancient astronauts or ancient aliens, as the TV series said. And they're just here doing scientific stuff, and probably they got the uh, 
people in Sodom represented a genetic direction they didn't like, and so they blew them up uh, with an atomic weapon or something like that. Mm-hmm. What von Däniken did was take the, the uh, Genesis story of Sodom literally, which conservatives would like, and which will drive liberals nuts because they assume it's all mythology. Um, I tend to go with von Däniken on taking it literally, but and what he does is basically secularize the story. Uh, the ancient astronauts uh, had nothing to do with God. Uh, von Däniken says he believes in God, but the infinite God uh, would not be facing a time problem because uh, in the story the angels try to get Lot out of the city of Sodom quick because they know it's going to blow up any time now. And uh, why would the infinite God be constrained by time is what what Von Daniken asks. What I complain about with Von Daniken is that he basically took the information from Genesis as indicating ancient astronaut contacts in the past, but he pretty much skipped Exodus, and this is the key. And what we find is, if, I, if my interpretation is right, the aliens that Von Daniken believes are there were busy creating the Jewish religion. Why didn't he face up to this? Uh, and I had a similar problem with my time with the History Channel, because they tiptoed around what I was saying. They used me in, I think, ten different programs, something like that, but they give me like three sentences, you know? Mm-hmm. If you're going to take Von Daniken's theory that the ancient aliens are there, and they're there in biblical times, what are they doing? They created the Exodus story. They created the Jewish religion. <clears throat> they created the Christian religion. And we should look at it uh, from that point of view. Uh, the just I find it interesting that I was filmed for the History Channel four different times in New York City. Two different times I went into details about the parting of the Red Sea. So far as I know, they never, ever used that material. The History Channel did not, or Prometheus, which is the company that put it together. Um, and a long talk with them on kind of a conference call once, saying, you know, how come you won't go further and be consistent with what Von Daniken is saying, that aliens are there, they're doing stuff, and look, they brought about the biblical religion. Um, well, I know that the History Channel was taking a lot of heat from fundamentalist Christians uh, about what they were doing, and in fact, conservative Christians even put together uh, their own movie to counteract the Von Daniken stuff. So it may be that the History Channel is getting too much religious heat, we'll say, from from the uh, conservatives to uh, dare to put up the material I did on the Parting of the Red Sea. But you would think <coughs> that any group that's interested in ancient aliens and uh, relating it to the Bible, which they were, that they would consider the Parting of the Red Sea story uh, a really important piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. but they didn't. Mm-hmm. In our remaining couple of minutes here, Dr. Uh, uh, Reverend Downey, it's a, a fact that there has been an exodus from uh, many Christian churches, attendance from measured from the 1960s to today. The number of people attending is down, percentages are down. It doesn't, to me, mean that God is dead. 
does it mean that, that the churches need to somehow reconnect the message with the people? What uh, If you could right now in two minutes be talking to a number of ministers and priests, what would you recommend, Reverend Downey? I would say, look, the government has been lying to us for 70 years about the UFO situation. I believe these are the angels of God. We've been so deadened by our unbelief due to science that we haven't even dared guess or hope that UFOs might carry the angels of God. Uh, we need to get the government to stop lying about this, and we need to look at the Bible from a space-age point of view, and we need to suppose that God is a God who delegates power. Uh, Jesus, you know, was on earth for three years of ministry, and then he was crucified, raised from the dead, and said, all authority has been given me on heaven and earth, go and make disciples of all nations, and he delegated his authority to the church. God is a big delegator. What I think we need to do is to see the angels as having quite a bit of authority, more than the church has understood up to this time, and that they're flying in our skies now, and they're doing things like um, disconnecting the computers and our uh, missile silos, stuff like that. Hmm. They are watching over the earth. They're not just doing what we call religious stuff. <clears throat> so that's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reverend Downing, it's again a, a been a pleasure uh, to have you on the broadcast. Um, I thank you very much for your life's work, and I hope that that uh, I hope that you continue to do well in all ways. Thank you very much. Blessings to you too, Scott. Thank you, sir. Reverend Doctor Barry Downing, the author of the Bible and Flying Saucers. The 50th anniversary edition with a brand new introduction written by Dr. Downing is now out. And if you're a subscriber to my newsletter and or you want to log on to the Facebook page for Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, you'll see the, um, the links there, the multiple links, so you can read more about Dr. Downing and his work, uh, as well as I gave the link for I believe the Amazon link for this brand new 50th anniversary edition. Wow, what a, what a great program. The day before Pentecost Sunday. Interesting. I'm going to be thinking about that connection for the rest of the day. Jim, what have you got planned for the rest of the day? To relax at home. Okay, you've had a work week, and you're going to relax. Week and, and it's a weekend. I'm going to kick back. And uh, what's the forecast? And we've got something coming up later Still, on. Uh, yeah, slight that thirty percent chance of thunderstorms this evening. But uh, otherwise, it's a partly cloudy day. The sun is going in now behind the clouds, mm -hmm. and uh, not bad at all, really. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a fun adventure here in just uh, about five minutes. It's beta radio, and it's a test bed for brand new shows, new concepts. I hope you stay tuned. My thanks again to um, Reverend Dr. Barry Downing, the author of The Bible and Flying Saucers, for being with us this morning. We've got guests for 
all the way into the middle of summer planned. It's great to have you folks join us each Saturday morning. And uh, if you've enjoyed today's broadcast, the free archive will be posted usually by next Friday at kzum.org slash EUP. Thanks so much for your support of our work and for nonprofit, non-commercial KZUM. I'm Scott Colborn, and until next week, walk in beauty.